Good morning, family. My name is Christine. If we don't know each other, I serve on the leadership team as well at the Gospel Tab. And we are six weeks into our series on Ezra and Nehemiah. Six weeks into this. There's one wrap-up sermon, so I kind of get the the end-ish of our time together in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. And at the start of every sermon, what we like to do is give an overview of where we are in Scripture and who we are and what Ezra and Nehemiah is all about. But I think that you've heard that so many times that I think that now is the time for a pop quiz. So um, we're going to do the overview, and we're going to do this, but I just want you to access that part of your brain that you say, yeah, I think I know what you're going to say, but let's have this pop quiz together and see if you can get how many of these you can get right. Now, I could give prizes, but it would be leftover Halloween candy, and some of you, that'd be no prize at all. But I do have some of that if you want it later on. But here we go. Here's our overview into the book of Ezra and Nehemiah. Question number one. The books of the Bible called Ezra and Nehemiah were how many scrolls originally? A, one. B, too many to count. Three, Jesus and D, three, and D, Jesus. You know, we're in church, so Jesus, you might be tempted, is always the right answer. Anybody have a guess on this one? A, that's right. One scroll originally, and they divided it into two books, but we're teaching it all as one story because that's how it was originally presented. Question number two. In the timeline of the Old Testament, where is Ezra and Nehemiah found? In the beginning, smack dab in the middle, or right before Jesus and the New Testament, or all of the above? <laughs> That's the gimme. Anybody? Anybody? Do you remember this one? It's right before Jesus. This is what I call the covenant cliffhanger. It is the part of history that comes right before the silent years before Jesus. So even though if you open your Bible, you will find it in the middle of the Old Testament, it's actually at the very end of the history part or the narrative or the story part of the Old Testament. So we are right at the last story before the silent years and then Je the birth of Jesus. Question number three. Chosen people of God in the Old Testament are named the Jesusites, the Mosesites, the Adamites, or the Israelites? I thought you would get that one, the, the Israelites. Uh, question number four. There are three main leaders in Ezra and Nehemiah. Who are they? Zerubbabel, Ezra and Nehemiah, Jesus, James, and John, Joel, John, and Steve, <laughs> Ezra, Nehemiah, and Malachi. Anybody? Hey, you got that one. I threw that last one in there, the Ezra, Nehemiah, and Malachi, because Malachi was actually a contemporary in this story. So even though the book of Malachi is the end of the prophets, his story and his voice was heard in the middle of this narrative. Okay, here we go. A couple more questions. Who are the prophets in the day of Ezra and Nehemiah? Steve, Brooke, and Kiara, Isaiah, Ezekiel, and Jeremiah, Jesus, Zechariah, Haggai, and Malachi. 
You should get that one from the last question, but it is Zechariah, Haggai, Malachi. Remember that those things are, those prophets are in the middle of this narrative story, giving their voice along this timeline. So what, what, sweetheart? That's okay. I, we're just going to go with it for now. Is that all right? Yeah, that's right. So here we go. What are three main objectives of the Israelites upon their return from exile? And which one does not belong? Do we have this question? All right. Rebuild the temple. Rebuild the covenant community. Rebuild the Chick-fil-A. Rebuild the wall around the city. Okay. They would have wanted a Chick-fil-A, but they didn't, they didn't get that one. And then finally, what is the overall theme of Ezra and Nehemiah? A, faithfulness and failure. B, covenant hits and covenant misses. C, you think you can, but you can't. D, Jesus, or E, all of the above. So the story we still keep seeing repeated over and over in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah is this theme of covenant faithfulness and covenant failure. We keep seeing this theme of they're embracing the covenant and the presence of God, but they're walking away from it at the same time. And then they think that they have the capacity to obey this covenant, but it never fully gets realized. So this is the theme. So I'm excited to put Ezra and Nehemiah in your back pocket or wear a jacket and be able to pull these things out. So when you hear down the line something about the books Ezra and Nehemiah, you say, oh yeah, that was one story. Oh yeah, that had three main characters, three main objectives in it. Oh yeah, that's the story right before Jesus came back. Oh yeah, that's the story, not on how to build a wall, a temple, and a covenant community. That's not what that book is about. That book is about no matter how hard they tried, they still couldn't do everything that they were called to do. So those are the things that I hope you have in your back pocket when you walk away from this series. So let's just talk about this book of Ezra and Nehemiah. Just, let's just take a running leap up into our last couple of chapters. So first, Zerubbabel. I call these guys Zerubbabel, Ezra, Nehemiah, Zen. So he built the temple, the church. He came back with with. 57,000 people from exile. So these Israelites were disobedient, finally got sent away to Babylon. They were under captivity in this rule, but then the favor of God came upon them. Their timeout was over, and God the Father said, it's time for you to go back. You can go back now. And so they get the provision from the foreign leaders to go back and reestablish their nation. And the first thing this leader wants to do is create the center of their worship, which is the temple. It's not as good as Solomon's. We never really see the, the power of the Holy Spirit descending and... And the presence of God filling this temple like we did in the day of Solomon. But that center gets built. Check. Done. Ezra comes back 
like years later, 60 years later, another generation, brings another thousand people back. And his passion and calling that the God, God has brought him to is to bring this covenant people around this temple and to make them the covenant people that God has always designed them and, and called them to be. And he has this passion to do this. Now we know that he, they did read the law, but as we discuss, and Mary interpreted for us so well, and, and Brooke at the other campus, they misinterpreted God's heart in what the Torah was. And there were these nasty periods of divorcing foreigners to, to become more compliant in the, in the Torah. And it was, it was a messy situation. It was, it, was, um, it was a heartbreaker. So it was a covenant hit and a covenant miss, because they had a period of revival in that, but they missed the ultimate goal of the heart of God. And so then finally, Nehemiah is resourced to build this wall, this compound around the, the covenant people. And he comes, and through the provision, and through prayer, and despite obstacles, he's able to build this wall in 52 days with the help of all of these people. So here we see that God has called his people over this period of time through Zerubbabel and Ezra and Nehemiah to build these concentric circles or a bullseye of God's presence. In the center of it is the temple, the place where God's presence is going to dwell. Around that is going to be God's people, the covenant people gathering around the presence of God and his rules or laws or covenant of how he wants to interact with the people. And around that is this compound, an extension of the presence of God to the holy city. So he's made this plan, and the people just can't carry it off. So here we have, in end, in, in the chapter 12 of Nehemiah, we have the end of the rebuilding the wall, and we end on such, such a high note. Um, at this period of time, Nehemiah has built the wall, and now he's the governor, and so all of the people are, are um, reestablished in the land. They took a tenth of the people to move back into the city of Jerusalem, and they also, uh, Nehemiah also planned a uh, the Levites and re-instructed them on, on the, how to uh, carry out the, the covenant law in the temple and how the Levites were supposed to uh, enact all of these duties that they had for the purification of the people. And everything's really clicking in chapter 12. They're really, really, ha it's happening. And so a year or two, they think, after this point in time, the people have a grand celebration to dedicate the temple wall in Jerusalem. So let me read Nehemiah 12, 27. At the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, the Levites were sought out from where they lived and brought to Jerusalem to celebrate joyfully the dedication with songs, thanksgiving, and with music of cymbals, harps, and lyres. The musicians also were brought together from the region around Jerusalem. I had the leaders of Judah go on top of the wall. I assigned two large choirs to give thanks. One was to proceed on top of the wall to the right, as well as some priests with trumpet. Ezra, the teacher of the law, led this procession. 
The second choir proceeded in the opposite direction. I followed them on top of the wall together with half the people. The two choirs gave thanks and then took their place in the house of God, and so did I. And together with half the officials as well as the priests, and on the day they offered great sacrifices, rejoicing because God had given them great joy. The women and the children also rejoiced. The sound of rejoicing in Jerusalem could be heard from far away. And what we would like to say now is, and they lived happily ever after. If chapter 12 were the last chapter, it would be a manual on how to construct a revival and gather people around the presence of God and form these concentric circles. It would be the recipe, and you would do that. But there's a chapter 13. So... Our, let's think for a minute about our concentric circles. Let's just jump into our timeline. There is a physical place that we go to host the presence of God and listen to him. It can be our church building. It can also be the temple that God's created in our bodies. But also our community of Jesus followers engages like that second round of covenant people around that temple. And we gather and engage Jesus and go wherever he leads. And finally, we're expanding his presence into the outside of the church walls and into our city. That is the extension of the presence of God. So here is what God intended to happen or wants to happen in that day, in our day, is that the center of God's presence expands into his people and into the city. And as Israel, we keep coming back to the center, hosting the presence of God, gathering with the community of his followers, and participating in his mission. This is the first up, in, and out. So finally they build this, and they lived happily ever after. But then comes Nehemiah chapter 13. Let me read you. A few things. Before I tell you that, let me talk about the difference between the old covenant and the new covenant. This is what I came, this is what I came to thinking about all of us here. The difference between the old covenant and the new covenant. I thought, what if here on Sunday morning we decided that we were going to have a jumping competition and everyone was going to get out of their seats and see who could jump the highest? Um, now, what if we knew that in order to win the jumping competition, we actually had to touch the top rafter up there. We might see that that's an impossible task. I can't jump that high. Some of us would say, I can't even get off the ground. So maybe we would reinterpret, I can't jump that high, but maybe I can jump higher than the people in my row. Maybe my section can jump higher than that section. Perhaps I can jump more often, and that will be cumulatively enough to get to the ceiling. Maybe if we all contort it and say, you know, in a different way, I can jump to the ceiling and touch it by jumping more, or maybe all together. Or I can see, like, somebody getting on somebody else's shoulders and teetering, and we're going to figure this out like some junior high, you know, egg-dropping experiment, right? We're going to try and touch that. If that is the holiness of God, 
The old covenant tells us that we can't jump high enough, that we have humans, and as we look all the way through the narrative of Scripture, as we go all the way back to Adam and Eve and Abraham and Moses and Joshua and, and uh, all of the kings and the prophets, we just keep finding, even in light of their occasional and sometimes persistent faithfulness, they just can't jump high enough to get to the holiness of God. So now imagine the new covenant in this jumping co competition. I wish I could actually have one for this display, but let's just imagine a hydraulic lift right there. And I'm going to stand on this covenant, and I'm going to agree with this, that instead of jumping to the ceiling, I'm going to stand on this new covenant of this hydraulic lift, and I'm going to push the button. And it's just going to go slowly, slowly, slowly. And that has the capacity to bring me up to the ceiling. Now, it breaks down a little bit, but in this new covenant, we do have a choice. And I remember Steve saying last week that we come and encounter the word of God, but if we don't engage it, if we don't activate, if we don't participate with it, it never blooms or blossoms in our life. So this covenant here does require some choice on our part. Am I going to stand on this covenant? Am I going to participate with it? Am I going to engage in the power through the Holy Spirit to push that button, to do the, the growing thing that God wants to blossom? So there is this, this participation fact, but the old covenant shows us we could never get there on our own. And the new covenant gives us everything we need for life of righteousness. Now, in truth, it's not this vertical linear, I'm better than I was today than yesterday. It's more of this circle or orb of growth, of radiating out in those, in different areas. And actually, I may be growing symmetrically, or I may be growing in this way, but I haven't started my journey in that. And then it also involves deep healing. So it it's not a complete example, but it gets us started. So let's go through and walk through chapter 13, the rut rose. So 12 years later, Nehemiah goes back to serve the king again and comes back to see this covenant people that he's established. They had just had this huge celebration, and we know from previous sermons, it's a four-month journey, 900 miles, like walking to Kansas City, back to Babylon, and then, then four months coming back, and he was gone for somewhere around 12 years. This is what Nehemiah says. He says, and I came back to Jerusalem, and here I learned about the evil thing Eliashib, this is the high priest, had done in providing Tobiah he was one of the enemies that prevented the wall being built or intimidated. He had provided him a room in the courts of the house of God. Here, enemy, have one of these rooms. A little Airbnb here for you. I was greatly displeased and threw out all Tobiah's household goods out of the room. I gave orders to purify the rooms, and then I put back into them the equipment of the house of God with the grain offerings and the incense. I also learned that portions assigned to the Levites had not been given to them, and that all of the Levites and musicians were responsible for service had gone back to their own fields. So I rebuked the officials and I asked them, why is the house of God neglected? And then I called them together and stationed them at their posts. Nehemiah observes that this temple 
that Zerubbabel had built was being neglected. So this is our first undoing of the goals of Ezra and Nehemiah to establish the temple. And now the temple is being neglected. And Nehemiah, he's acting like a, a, a burnt girlfriend, right? He's just like coming in there and just like, and I'm going to take your stuff and I'm going to throw it out of here and I'm going to clean this thing up. Um, so he's having like a leadership meltdown. Like, this was the thing that we started. We had it all clicking. We had the presence of God in the temple. And you guys were supposed to take care of it. You were supposed to keep wood in these rooms, but you didn't do the sacrifices. So then there were empty rooms. So you had one of the enemies come in who, you know, was related to the high priest and you put him in there. So wrong. So wrong. So the, the next slide. They failed to keep the Torah or the law and the covenant. Here's Nehemiah 13, 15. In those days, I saw the people treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in the grain and loading it onto donkeys together with wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads. And they were bringing all this into Jerusalem on the Sabbath. Therefore, I warned them against selling food on that day. What Ezra had built in the revival, instituting the Torah was being disregarded. So here are these covenant people called to engage with the presence of God through right living and through giving God his dues and for being invited to participate in the Sabbath in enjoying the rest that God provided and enjoying his presence. And on those days, they were disregarding that and they were working. So Nehemiah, in Nehemiah 13, 14, Nehemiah prays, Remember me for this, O my God, and do not blot out what I have so faithfully done in the house of my God and its services. So Nehemiah is now praying to God, but he's praying for himself, much like I might have done as a parent when I'm like, Oh, these kids, these kids, they just not listening. God, remember me, I am trying. So then the next failure in Nehemiah 13, they failed to keep the wall. When the evening shadows fell on the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I ordered that the doors be shut and not be opened until the Sabbath was over. I stationed some of my own men at the gates so no one could so that no load could be brought in on the Sabbath day. Once or twice, the merchants and sellers of all kinds of goods spent the night outside Jerusalem. But I warned them, why do you spend the night by the wall? If you do this again, I will arrest you. So all of these foreign merchants are coming in to sell their goods, and they're occupying the space inside and outside the wall where this commerce is supposed to happen. They're tempting the people, and they're preventing the expansion of these concentric circles, the presence of God that is supposed to um, extend to the people of God that is supposed to be inside this holy city. And now the enemies are encroaching with their culture to challenge them. What Nehemiah had built in the wall was undermined and misused. So Nehemiah prays again in verse 22. Remember me for this also, my God, and show me mercy according to your great love. And the last verse in Nehemiah 13 is, Remember me with favor, my God. And everything that had been done was undone. 
Now, did you know? We we ask the question: Did the Israelites fail as followers? Well, the Israelites couldn't jump. They didn't even try, and I can relate. And I can't even tell you what that must have been like with 70 years of culture outside of the covenant culture and then coming back, and that culture clash between what they were taught and what they were raised in must have been really hard to decipher. I always try, and I've been taught, like, let's read the scriptures with compassion on these people. And not just say, ah, well, armchair quarterback over here, you know, this is what you should have done. This is what would have been better for those people. Now we can clearly tell on our side of the prophecy what should have happened here. But we read with compassion because we all know as followers, we have failed as well. As leaders, we have failed as well. So did Nehemiah fail as a leader? I can relate. I have failed as a leader many times. So Nehemiah had governed but gone back to serve the king, and in his absence they failed to keep the temple, and Nehemiah rebukes them. They failed to keep the Torah, and Nehemiah curses them and calls them out. They failed to keep the town and the walls and the place of foreign transactions, and Nehemiah warns them, kicks them out, and threatens to arrest them. There's also a place in there where he rips out people's hair. Nehemiah is having a crisis in leadership. But I take all of these prayers in this heart of Nehemiah, and I contrast that with the very first prayer that Nehemiah prays in chapter 1 of Nehemiah. Nehemiah, Lord, God of heaven, great and awesome, who keeps his covenant love with those who love him and keeps his command, let your ear be attentive to me, and your eyes hear the prayer of your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants and the people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. We have acted wickedly toward you. We have not obeyed the commands and the decrees and the laws you gave your servant Moses. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to a place I have chosen as the dwelling for my name. So do you see the contrast between all the prayers that he prayed in 13? Remember me. Have favor on me. I tried my best. Two, I identify with the people I am leading. I confess our sin. We are failing. We want to come back into your presence. So we re read this with compassion, and I ask this question, was it a real revival? Did it even really happen? Was it lasting? I think it was real, but it didn't last. Is our revival, the ones that happen in our day, are they real? Yes. And no, because the kingdom is here and it's not yet. We're, we are still looking forward to that revival that doesn't end. That day where our hearts are revived and it doesn't ebb and flow. Where we don't slip back into our culture. Where we are able to sustain the covenant between God. Where we're able to hit the button and just keep going closer and closer into the presence of God. That's what we long for. That's what we're looking forward to. 
So we're always operating in our beliefs. Our faith is something that is always clicking 100%. So this philosopher said there are three different kinds of beliefs. You have your public beliefs, what you say you believe. Your private beliefs, what you think in your head, maybe the doubts that you have, things you don't share with other people. But then there's your core beliefs. And your core beliefs are always working. And you behave and you interact and react based on your core beliefs, even if you don't know what they are in your head. So one way that you can determine what you believe is to see how and analyze, how am I acting in this situation? How am I feeling in this situation? So our message to followers is we keep seeking revival. We keep coming back to the center and hosting the presence of God both in our group gatherings and in our private gathering with God. We keep hosting the presence of God, knowing him in truth, and gathering with the community of his followers and participating in his mission. The up, in, and out is our expression of revival, is our way to revival. So these are the elements that you'll be able to say, this is a revival happening. It involves our mind, our will, and our emotion. So correct knowledge or vision of God often leads to confession and repentance with tears. Someone said recently, pray for the gift of tears. Pray for the gift to be able to see yourself rightly in the presence of God. Because he comes in with his love in those moments, his forgiveness and his healing, and it is the sweetest place to be. It's where Nehemiah was in Nehemiah 1. So we often encounter God's presence with forgiveness, and that often leads to joy. Have you ever felt that ton of bricks just lift off your shoulders when he's healed you, he's accepted you, and he's forgiven you? And there's often signs of healing and deliverance. We might see them on a myopic, small individual level, but we look back at to these Israelites in Ezra and Nehemiah, epic, miraculous deliverance of the whole people from Babylon back to the land with provision. And sometimes that deliverance comes on a much larger scale than we anticipate. Sometimes the healing we experience, we don't even acknowledge. Maybe for it wasn't a moment or a lightning bolt that happened, but you say, wait, I am more healed last year than I am this year. I am walking in this process of healing. I'm walking in this process of being delivered rather than having those moments, which are also very significant. So, and it's often followed by a desire to stay in God's presence and to obey his commands. So I had a, an experience like this when I was in college. And actually it was, it was mean because my college professor said, hey, it was Christian ministry class, and he was saying, hey, I can take all of your spiritual gift sets and your personality type, and I can read it backwards, and I can tell you all the struggles that you'll have, you'll, you'll deal with, with that particular gift and mix set. Any volunteers? Christine, how about you? I didn't volunteer. But I said, yeah, sure, go ahead. And so he looked at my whole, you know, gift set. We'd been doing a lot of self-analysis and my personality type and those kind of things. And he just kind of like 
read my mail. He just kind of told me everything that was wrong with me. And, and all of my weaknesses and what I trip over. And the way he said it, he didn't, wasn't intending it. But man, I walked out of that room kind of shell-shocked. Like, wow, I am really all of those things. Yeah, I, I fail in all of those ways. And I was really undone. And for the next 19 days, I counted. I cried every day. And I was just pouring my heart out to the Lord and saying, Lord, I'm all of those things. I am weak in all of those ways. I cannot do what you have called me to do because look at all of this. And he's very sweetly to me. The Holy Spirit took what one man meant benignly. I don't hold anything against him. And he really worked with me on that. And he said, Christine, your sin is not a tumor cancer. It can't be cut out of you like a tumor and be disposed of. Your cancer is leukemia. It's in your blood. It's in every cell of your body. You can't put your finger on it. It's your thoughts, your attitudes, your motivations, and it's things that you can't control. It's, can't, it's not something like a diet that you can say, I'm going to stop doing that now. He says, it's all of that. It's all of that you've been jumping, and you can't even get in your heart, your will, your mind, and emotion. You can't even get off the ground. And as I cried and cried and cried, I found, even though I accepted Jesus as my Savior at a very young age, this was another moment of my salvation, where he said, no, I died for your leukemia. That sin in your bloodstream, the things you can't control, the things you can't stop doing, I died for that. I'm healing that. I'm bringing you out of that. And as I cried and cried and cried, I just, like a whole new room of God's grace, opened up to me. A whole new opportunity for him to minister to my soul came into me because it wasn't about doing bad things. It was about who I was and that he accepted me, he loved me, and he was going to bring me into the holiness of God because of his righteousness. So, a little message to those of us who are leaders and on mission. We're living our life on mission for something. Even if we haven't defined it, we all have a mission. So the, the message is the same. Keep coming back to the center. Hosting the presence of God. Gathering with the community of his followers and participating in his mission of up, in, and out. Because it is the Spirit who will do the work. It is in the Spirit that we have power. And it is obedience to Him over the outcomes. I want to sit with many of you and tell you, if you don't already know, that when you're in ministry, there is a lot of heartbreak. And you will pour your life out for people. And even if you're a parent, you may be pouring your life out in that mission. And you will see people walk away. And Jesus saw people walk away. And the outcome of your mission is not always the goal. It is the obedience to the Father and participating with him in what he is doing. So just a little bit of encouragement that it's obedience over outcomes. And so we remember Luke 10, do not rejoice that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in the book of life.
So what questions are we left asking? Who can follow faithfully? No one in their own strength. Who can lead people faithfully? No one but Jesus. Only he can. What does it leave us longing for? It leaves us longing for a faithful leader and the power to complete the mission and lasting revival. So, how, so we ask, how does Jesus follow? How is he better Israelite? Jesus is the better follower. He fulfilled the covenant. He made the jump. When he lived, he jumped all the way. He did everything right. He fulfilled every bit of the covenant. And he fulfilled it on behalf of us. He achieved the holiness of God while he walked the earth. And how is Jesus the better leader? He came all the way down. He is the hydraulic lift. He lifts us all the way to the Father when we depend and trust on him, when we lean on him. So if you, if you failed as a leader, Jake, you can come up, or anyone else, or failed as a follower, Jesus has all of the answers that we need. The answers are his presence. And what is really interesting to me in Ezra and Nehemiah is that God does not criticize Nehemiah. He doesn't criticize the Israelites. There's no emotional reaction on behalf of God. God already had the plan. He already has the plan. For those Israelites, for these Jesus followers, and for the ones that are to come, and he can be trusted. So come with me. Keep coming with me to the center and the presence of God. Maintain. Throw the log on that fire, whatever it may be. Keep gathering with the people of God, encouraging one another that we're on this journey together. We're not on individual hydraulic lifts. We're not growing individually. We're growing in community together. It's us. It's an us thing, not, an, not a me thing. And then keep pushing out because the presence of God cannot be contained. He wants to push it out of these walls, out of our community, out into our city, out to other people. He wants to do that we want to participate with him. Amen.